The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. Today we have a wonderful guest, a man who usually needs no introduction, but since he can't see him, I guess I have to introduce him. I am joined by the one, the only, Bill Sapsis. How are you doing today, Bill? Hi, Ethan. I'm, uh, I'm doing well. Uh, I hope the same uh, is true for you. Surviving like everyone else, can't yeah, complain. Yeah, yeah. So uh, right out of the gate, the first question, who are you? Ah, good question. Um, well, I run a rigging company that is based in Philly. Uh, I've been in the industry since 1972. Don't let these boyish good looks fool you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I've done a lot of stuff, but uh, you know, I've had the rigging company since 1981. Does that, uh, does that yeah. tell you who I am? Sure, absolutely it does. Are we, um, are we done now? Yep, that's it. Uh, this is a land speed record for not only a conversation between Bill and I, but also this podcast. Um, one of the questions I would ask, and I actually don't know the answer to this myself, is how did you get into the rigging business? Oh, um, self-defense? Uh, I don't know. Um, I was freelancing for about nine years uh, around the country in New York, and I did a lot of different things. I was a TD. I was a carpenter. I Worked in the metal shops on Broadway, on the Broadway shops for a number of years. Um, and it exposed me to a lot of different uh, crafts within the industry. And when I decided to move back to Philly in 81 and needed a job, uh, I figured, hey, well, let's start a rigging company and see how that goes. So that's how I got into the rigging business. So... Through your your pre business career was uh, you mentioned you were a technical director and and such. Um, was there anything specific about rigging that made you decide that you want to do that as a business startup versus scenic building or or any other of the aspects? You know, I think it's probably a question of what knowing what I didn't want to do rather than what I wanted to do. Um, my technical director stuff had been mostly summer stock and touring with uh, regional uh, opera companies. Um, and I knew I didn't want to do that again. <laughs> uh, the shop work, which was a combination of carpentry. And I started out as a carpenter uh, and then switched over to metalwork. Uh, was good fun and all that. But I recognized that it was a short-lived, short, excuse me, short-lived career. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how long I was going to be able to maintain that. And the rigging work that I had done, which I had done in various parts of the country for other uh, other companies, um, you know, provided me with some travel, 
provided me with some variety. So I think that was more intriguing than, than pretty much anything else. It wasn't so much the rigging. I mean, I enjoyed it, um, but it wasn't, that wasn't what said, oh, go do this. It was more of the ability to, um, to have a, a broader uh, scope, if you will. Right. So you start sepsis rigging uh, in the early 80s. Um, you build that uh, to a very successful company that is, um, you know, it, we use the term Kleenex for facial tissues. Sapsis is a brand name, but is synonymous with rigging uh, worldwide. How did you uh, go from starting your business, which was providing uh, rigging services to the education side of uh, what you now do because you spend a lot of your time now uh, educating others in rigging as well as we'll get to some of the other things you've been involved with to help the industry. But how did you start doing the teaching thing? Well, the teaching side of it had always been interesting to me. And uh, let's be clear. I mean, the company does a lot of different things. The, 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 the seminar, the teaching, um, the outreach kind of things are what I do. I mean, it's just one facet of the company. Um, and oh, I suppose now that I think about it, I haven't really given this much of a thought before, but I suppose it was started up in part because of, you know, I saw the need. Um, I, you know, I realized that you know, there was a lot going on and People with all the best intentions weren't necessarily doing things in a manner that was uh, safe. Um, right. But it was an, also an opportunity to uh, for me to get out there. Uh, I, you know, I started running a company. I was not rigging like I had used I used to in the early days of the company. Sure, I was rigging all the time because there wasn't that many of us and every all hands on deck kind of thing. Whenever we got a decent sized rigging job. Um, but as I as the company grew and I transitioned into a more administrative role with the company, um, I didn't necessarily like that all that much, and I wanted to keep my hand in. I wanted to keep focused on the aspects of the of the rigging industry that I enjoyed, and that was the training aspects of it. I certainly think that one of the things you had mentioned is something that you enjoy, and and the it does allow people to see what you're doing as a business owner and the services you provide. But also, uh, I think anyone who's met you knows that you like to communicate. You have a huge, um, well, how do I want to say it? You have a lot of very good stories. You've been in the industry for some time and you've been able to develop these experiences and you do an amazing job sharing those experiences with people. Um, in a very entertaining way. So I think that's something that, you know, fits in naturally with the, the teaching component of it. One of the topics that we did a podcast about was the ETCP program. You've been heavily involved with that since the beginning. Do you want to talk a little bit how you uh, and the group came up with the idea of doing a certification program, why it was the right time to do it and, and kind of that origin of the program from your standpoint? Right. Well, the, the, first of all, to set the record straight, I was not 
involved in the absolute beginning of um, of the ETCP. There had been one or two meetings of interested parties um, who, you know, I talked about it and, and, you know, for their reasons, you know, decided to move uh, into the program, decided to put, try and put something together. They knew something needed to be done. Uh, and uh, Rocky Paulson and uh, a gentleman named Bear Wong were um, uh, kind of tapped to, to lead the charge and they wanted a third person. And that third person turned out to be me. So, um, you know, they had gotten the, their foot, you know, the, the, the door had been opened a bit before I got involved. Um, but not, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't wide open yet for, by any stretch. Right. Um, so I got involved and, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of talk, a lot of meetings that's one would expect. And the very first attempt at, putting a certification program together proved to us, us, the people working on it, that we didn't know what we were doing. We knew, we knew rigging, uh, but we didn't know the certification process. So there was kind of a, 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 a step that we took a step to the side a little bit. And, you know, we had gone for a little while down a road and realized that we were on the wrong road, took a sidestep, got um, a certification company involved and that put us on the road to a better organizational process and ultimately what we have today. My involvement in the early stages was uh, we decided right off the bat that we were going to do two certifications to start one for theater for theater rigging and one for arena rigging. And I was put in charge of the group that was putting together the theater rigging uh, exam. You know, what the, at the time, I think, pretty sure we started calling them subject matter experts pretty much from the beginning. So we did that. And it was a four-year process. Yeah, about four, maybe a little bit more. So that would have started in 2000, 2001, then, if the, the first tests were 2005? Right. Yep. 2000, you know, it's right around there, 2001, I would, if memory serves, and we all know how that goes these days. Exactly. <laughs> Especially these days where it's, uh, you know, it's April 29th again and again and again. Right. It just keeps repeating. Um, so for you, what is the what was the importance of creating a certification why why did we need to do this versus hey you know maintain the status quo and, and keep going as we were in the wild frontier of the entertainment business you know that's kind of a hard question to answer because you know you tend to answer it with the benefit of hindsight i'm not so sure i had that much foresight forethought excuse me um when uh, when we started putting it together, but I'd like to think that I realized, you know, I had been doing a lot of training um, and 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 conference work, you know, that that sort of thing. The seminar program was doing reasonably well, um, and I was recognizing what was going on in the industry, and it wasn't it wasn't a 
do-it-yourself kind of industry anymore. You know, it kind of was way back in the beginning. Um, and we needed a better organization. We need better, better skilled people to handle the things that we were doing in, in the early 2000s. Um, things were complicated. Uh, and this seemed to be one of the ways to kind of codify that and, you know, help push that forward. All right. One of the topics we talked about with Meredith was that when the program was first rolled out, there was a lot of perception about it that it was intended that every single rigger be certified. And we talked about how really it was the upper third of riggers that were looking uh, to be certified that it wasn't for everyone for the people who still 15 years later still might be resistant to becoming certified. For, what would you say to them in terms of the benefits of, of doing the, the examination in obtaining that certification, whether it's arena or theater? Well, it's a personal answer. Everybody's, you know, benefit, if you will, um, is going to be a little bit different, I think. Um, and there are probably some people who, you know, there's a zero benefit to them um, for whatever reasons. You know, I can think of several. But for the most part, you know, you get a new tool in your toolbox, I think, is probably the easiest way to say it. Uh, you know, back in the day when you were a hotshot rigger and you were trying to get a job and you wanted to convince this prospective employer that you were a hotshot rigger, that's all you got to do is say, hey, I'm a hotshot rigger. And, you know, hopefully you got a couple of your friends to come by and, and tell this prospective employer that, yeah, oh, yeah, he's a hotshot or she's a hotshot rigger. Um, having a certification with, a, as you mentioned, the understanding that that certification is for the people within the top third of that particular discipline, uh, you know, now you got a, you know, a, a, an ID card, you got a little certificate that says that, yeah, this actually might be true. Um, as I said, it's another tool in your toolbox. Um, yeah, I, I use the toolbox analogy quite a bit, apparently. Um in, in talking about always learning and, and improving within your craft and anything that you can put in your toolbox, it may not be something you use all the time, but if it's, it's there when you need it. So, um, and, and that's the other part of the certification that I am, I guess, proudest of really, um, is that just by nature of the exam, people were taking, the um, the craft, you know, the rigging craft, arena or theater, um, they're taking it more seriously. And as I said, it's no more. It was no longer a, a do-it-yourself kind of thing. Um, people were getting, or at least seeking out, better training. Um, they were more cognizant of the the, the challenges within the uh, in within the industry. You know, it it got people to step up is kind of what it did. Right. Absolutely. So that initial group of subject matter experts was a uh, 
especially to young people in the industry, was a who's who of the rigging <laughs> world. As you mentioned, uh, Rocky Paulson, Roy Bickle, um, those are the two names that pop to my mind right now. Um, well, there and, was, there was, yeah, there was, you know, there was about oh, about a dozen people on either I, side, and don't you dare ask me to mention names because I'll, well, I'll remember some and forget others and get in a world of trouble. Another one, another one that popped in my head, Ed Kish. Um, right. So, a lot of people. One of the questions, and I'm going to ask you. Um, I asked the question of some of my, of most of my guests, who have some of your mentors being? Mm. Well, that list of subject matter experts is usually, it's someone from that list that comes up for a lot of people is they have been mentors. And, um, I certainly think there are a lot of people who would consider you to be a mentor to them. Who are some of your mentors? And it, usually I try to say within rigging, but you've had such a, a long career that maybe it was someone from early on when you weren't necessarily specifically doing rigging that really kind of shaped your um, outlook on the industry. I was, I was recently asked this question. I, I can't remember why, but it, it caused me to go back and think about it uh, again. Cause you know, as you get older, your perspective change. And you start to recognize things, I think, that, you know, a 30-year-old isn't going to recognize. And it got me thinking about who really affected my, uh, my outlook and my perspective on the, on the industry. Uh, from that subject matter experts that you just mentioned, there's a gentleman named Jack Cease who um, uh, was one of my mentors. I did... When he was with J.R. Clancy uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, I did a number of rigging projects for him. And we developed a working relationship and a personal relationship that uh, was, I don't, this, I don't have a better word for it. It was special. It was very special to me. And it, it helped me um, understand not only the industry, but also understand myself a little bit better. Unfortunately, Jack uh, passed away after a very short illness in um, 2007. And just by coincidence, if you'll bear me a, a, a sidetrack here, uh, we just did a, a virtual Stump the Rigger session on uh, you know, last week, um, which is uh, a continuation of something that I've been doing for many years at, uh, at USIPT. And Jack was involved with that. And after he passed away, I uh, developed a um, the Jack Cease Memorial Stump the Rigger Trophy, which is the grand prize if you uh, manage to and, stump us. And you had posted, uh, as we're recording this, it was a few days ago that you did the virtual Stump the Rigger. Um, and you had posted the question, the winner, which I believe was... Um, and I'm, I don't have it in front of me, but using an EN60 sling in a basket configuration with two 5 inch shackle, what is right. the working load limit? Right. Um, I haven't seen the answer myself. Do you remember what the answer was? You had mentioned that this was kind of a tricky one, and I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but um, 
What what was the answer? What, well, a I, obviously it stumped you guys. Well, yes and no. Um, and I can easily throw the, um, the, 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 the the person who asked the question under the bus on this one. Andy Schmitz was the, the guy who asked the question, and he's been around. You know, I've known Andy for many, many years. A good rigger lives in Vegas. Does a lot of work with the casinos and, and a lot of aerialist stuff. Um, and he had pulled a specification off of um, the Roundsling standard. And yes, it's it's you know I don't have that standard in front of me, but um, he um, and he came up with this question, which he was thinking of the basket configuration on, that was on the standard, which is not what you and I and most theatrical or entertainment riggers would think of as a basket configuration. So we had it right for what we were thinking. And he had it right for what he was thinking. So, you know, it's all in the presentation. Now, if you it, want to find it, out, just bug Andy about it. He'll tell you. Right. It's one of the things that uh, I know that I talk about when I do my instruction is um, terminology can matter, you know, and, and you have regional terms. People call something different things, and there's always been a – uh, struggle to want to come up with a standard set of definitions on things. So that's a good example of how a term, a basket, could mean two different things to two different groups of people right. um, with the same equipment. So you mentioned the... Uh, Before you go any further, I want to circle back because we got sidetracked off of the mentor question. Yes. Um, and and since you brought it up and, and I had been thinking about it, not too long ago, I realized how important um, the question is and the answer. Um, because it's not always what you think it is. Um, mentorship, which is a dying art in our industry, sadly, sad to say, um, is an extremely important method for not just discovering your craft, but who you are within your craft. Uh, and I, I, I'm on my soapbox now for a moment, and I, and I apologize, but it's not always going to be, you know, that person that you knew with within the entertainment industry, who, you know, the rigor that you knew or whatever, right? Um, right. My uh, my mentors, I realized as I thought about it, uh, included a guy named Harvey Wadeen, who was part of the Curtis String Quartet, which is a very, very famous string quartet based in Philadelphia. And he was my boss on my very first job in 72. And I was a technician in the summer stock theater, and he was the administrator. He was the, the guy who ran it. But from a, from, a, from a music standpoint, you know, he taught piano. He was at Temple University. He was the dean of the school there, I believe, for a while. And I learned more from him about the right and wrong of dealing with people um, than I have from anybody else. And, you know, I didn't realize, I didn't realize it until you know, many, many, many years later how much of an impact he had. So you're not always looking at somebody who had, you know, what you would think of or call a direct impact. I had other people 
to the the gray hairs on the in the audience may remember Pete Feller Sr. who ran Feller Scenery in the Bronx and in up in Newburgh up at uh, Stewart Air Base. And I was with him in the Bronx for a while and up at the at the Air Base and I learned an awful lot from him. But that was more uh, technically oriented, more direct directly uh, specific to the to the industry. Okay, right. I'm off my Oh no, it's part of the reason for for doing these podcasts is to allow people to to stand on the uh on the soapbox. I think one of the things people also tend to do when they hear the term mentor is instantly think of someone who is older than you uh and that I've come to learn that there have been people I've worked with that are my peer group that are also mentors to me that I've learned some very good lessons from them as well so i think you're absolutely correct the the you know hindsight's 2020 and when you can reflect upon it you can say wow i i learned so much from so and so shifting gears a little bit you had mentioned the development of the stump the rigor at usitt there's also another thing that you do at USITT, which some people may not know about if they've never been to it, which is the Kazoo Parade. <laughs> and so can you tell about the origins about uh, of the Kazoo Parade? Because if you've not experienced this, it is, it's completely fun. It is, um, there are reasons to do it, but it is just a fun time. It is a, you know, we all joke that we built careers on the backside of the proscenium and that we never wanted to be performers. But the reality is there's a bit of performer in all of us. So that, that gives us an opportunity to uh, ex to let that part out once a year. So do you want to talk about the kazoo parade? A kazoo parade. Well, the answer is a little bit more complicated than you might think. Um, I started along with Greg Williams in 2004, going way back when, a... Um, a charity motorcycle ride. Um, and in that, that year was supposed to be a one shot deal. We rode from East coast to West coast and landed at the USITT conference. Um, and as it turns out, we decided we had so much fun. We decided to do it and we were continuing to do it to this day. Our business card, and this is something that I believe Greg came up with. Our business card is a kazoo. And we have been giving out kazoos along the ride since the very beginning. It's just a regular little kazoo. It's got the, the Long Reach Long Rider logo stamped on it. And it makes a great business card. It's got the, the website on it, too. Um, shifting to the um, USITT conference, I don't remember whether we did one the very first year, 2004. We did a raffle. Um, to raise money that first year, uh, we decided to raise money for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, and you know we got people to donate prizes. Companies would donate, you know, something, you know, their products and stuff, and we raffled them off, uh, sold tickets to raise money for Broadway Cares, and and frankly to raise awareness, uh, and it went really well. And as I said, we decided to do the ride again the next year, and on and on and on, and. The raffle came with it in 2005. Behind the scenes had come into existence, so we added them to the um, 
to the to, as a as a beneficiary to the ride and the raffle and you know i wish i knew when it was but it was the second or third year where we got the idea somebody came up with the idea of starting a parade to to wander around the the, the trade show floor drum up some business you know get people to to come over to the booth where we were doing the uh, the raffle you know it was kind of a you know come hither kind of a kind of a thing and we've been doing it ever since i for better or for worse i've been the one leading the parade and usually in the early days because it was a motorcycle based thing i would just put you know wear my motorcycle gear i you know a leather vest you know a, a do rag and chaps or whatever and uh that was that and then there was the year when i decided to wear a toga and things changed oh. after that i think the toga was the first costume that i wore um and it went over really really well god help me uh and well, it goes back to your original comment at the beginning of your stunning good looks. Yeah, my stunning good looks. Yeah, right. Um, and you know, and every year there's there's been a different costume. I've been a pirate. Um, I was Uncle Sam one year. You know, I've done a, a, a zillion. Well, not a zillion, but you know, a bunch of different costumes just for fun. Um, and last year, the the the, the year not this year that we didn't have the conference, but the year prior, I, <laughs> I hoodwinked Eddie. We each got into an, inf those inflatable T-Rex costumes and uh, yep. ran around the trade show floor in those. Um, and frankly, it was hysterical. Uh, run is probably a, uh, a strong word His you know, I could tell you both were struggling in those things to, to walk they're not very ergonomic well it, um, wasn't, it wasn't so much the walking part they were hotter in blazes and i couldn't see my my glasses yep. and the little the, the, the crummy little visor that you get with the costume immediately fogged up and i literally could not see you know my hand in front of my face yep. and apparently eddie could so he was kind of leading me around in this run waddle sort of thing we were doing <laughs> yep. it, it was a sight to be seen mm -hmm. um but it, it, what it's all about but the serious part of it is there's there's the raffle component of it at the end of the parade and uh, a lot of companies give away some great prizes and an effort to uh, raise awareness and support for some of the charitable organizations uh, within the industry so um despite it really being a fun occasion, there is a serious part of it. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I wish I had participated as a student more in USITT when I was in college. I didn't start attending until a few years ago as a professional. Um, so I, I missed some of the early experiences of, of the Kazoo Parade, but it's certainly a lot of fun. Um, I want to shift gears a little and talk about a subject that you have spent a lot of time uh, researching, developing, and then teaching, which is fall arrest, uh, fall protection, and fall arrest. And one of the the 
one of the questions I wanted to start with is uh, you decided to develop a product line of followers for the entertainment industry. Um, I wanted to ask what was the thought process of coming out with a product line specifically for the entertainment business? Because I, I would assume it wasn't just, we need things in black since, you know, <laughs> we work in theater, but there, there was more to it. Um, if that was a question, I'll stop there. Okay. Well, I, I got to tell you just that if it were up to me, harnesses would be, you know, day glow orange or some photoluminescent material. Um, when I'm working, when I have a crew working in an arena or in an armory, for example, a large venue, and I've got a bunch of people in the high steel at various places around the room. And if somebody were to come off the steel and left hanging there, I um, I want to find them quickly. You know, you can't always count on yelling and screaming because they may not be conscious. Um, right. And, and, you know, when you're looking at somebody who's wearing blue jeans and a black T-shirt and wearing a black harness, it's going to take, a, 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 you know, and a couple of extra seconds to find out where they are. And, and you don't you don't always have those extra seconds. Um, so for my choice, yeah, I mean, harnesses would be pink or something, but, um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to win that battle. I started the line for two very specific reasons. The first one, I I readily admit, and I've told anybody who's willing to to listen that there was a commercial reason in 2007, the, um, the Z359 ANSI standards for fall, the fall protection code, uh, the rev- a revision came out that created a sea change in the way we looked at fall protection and fall arrest in North America, not our industry, but in North America. Um, and I recognized it as a commercial opportunity to bring out a line that spoke specifically to the entertainment industry, um, which none of the other equipment did. You know, when, when, when I brought out my line, uh, there were no, there was no such thing as sizes in harnesses. For example, you know, you can right. get sizes. There was one size fits all and small, and that was it. And we came out with sizes going from double extra small to extra large. Um, so it was a commercial opportunity. I readily admit that. Hey, you know, I got to make a living like everybody else. Um, but it was also the the reason that. There was no equipment that catered, that addressed the issues that we face as entertainment riggers. And I, I saw an opportunity to try and fix that. And that's what I've been doing. I think one of those specific uh, situations is the challenge of um, multiple attachments to a single D-ring, which you're not allowed to do. Uh, by OSHA law, you can only have one hook in one D-ring. And a specific situation we face is a vertical lifeline climbing a wire rope ladder and transitioning to a horizontal lifeline where you would have your lanyard that you would then clip into that. So you developed a harness that has multiple D-rings that are offset from each other to alleviate that situation. Dorsal ring. 
dorsal ring. What did I say? D, D ring. Yeah. <laughs> well, now it gets even more complicated now that you can attach to your sternum in certain applications. But right. um, but it goes back to that. Hey, terms are important. Being specific is yeah. important. So, um, speaking of hardware and PPP, one of the questions I'll ask people is, do you have a favorite tool right now? And it could be rigging related. It could not be rigging related. It could be just kind of generic. But for our gearhead friends out there, is there any, uh, any widgets that are drawing your attention to them recently? Yeah, full disclosure here. You know, I don't, I don't go into the field. I don't go on site and rig anymore. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm older now, and I have younger people who can do that, and I also have people who are in better shape who can who can do that. But you know, my my specific role in the in the industry. You know, it changed. It started to change when I started the company, and you know, by by two thousand, I was I was not in the air nearly as often as I had been before. Nowadays, I show up on site, and for two reasons. One of two reasons: either I, you know, the client is a friend of mine, and I want to go say hello, or they owe me money. You know, those are the reasons I show up on site. Um. But as far as tools are concerned, uh, you know, so I don't have a specific tool for myself, but we've developed some tools that I think work really well. Uh, some of the self-retracting uh, devices, which used to be called self-retracting lifelines, but they're now called devices. Um, some of those that we have brought into the entertainment industry, I think uh, do a wonderful job in uh, protecting people yeah i i think that's been an area where our specific challenges of portable or temporary structures that weren't designed to have people climbing on them and, and how do we deal with those challenges um there have been some great product developments to help address those specific needs yeah a related question would be What's an area within the industry that you think we need further development in or, or to change the culture? Interesting question. Um, you know, we've done a lot over the last 15, 20 years, I think, um, to promote and continue safety awareness um, within the industry. I think now and this is probably going to get me in trouble with some people out there. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are doing training, and I think that's a really good thing. Um, I, the vast majority of them are doing a good job. Um, but we're all still working on our own in a way. Uh, you know, I get my information from the resources that I have had available to me over the last... 40 some years and you know you or you know eric eric rouse or some of the others are going to get your information potentially from those same resources or from you know additional resources but you're going to interpret them just a little bit differently than i do and than eric does and i'm wondering as we move into a more complex 
highly sophisticated rigging world, uh, you know, with the kind of work that we're doing and the speeds we're working at and, the, frankly, the sizes of things that we're working with. Um, I'm looking for something that's a little bit more structured. And I, you wouldn't normally hear me say something like that. But I would, I would love to see something that um, it's more codified you know, so that people decide that these are the right questions and these are the right answers. And this is the kind of thing that we need to be teaching people. There's a, a colleague of mine who is a avid scuba diver, and he's actually a master dive instructor. And he and I have had discussions about um, within the diving world, they have a very prescriptive set of criteria that you have to teach. You have to teach certain elements to your students. And uh, certainly you understand that with them, it's the you know more immediate life safety, but we have some of the same concerns. If we don't do something correctly, people can and will get hurt. Mm-hmm. So we've had those discussions about should we be developing uh, certain criteria that we should be teaching? And Eric and I have had the discussion about uh, something as simple, again, as terms, math terms. Some people call it tension in a bridal leg. Some some people call it force. Um, There are different variables that you can call things. Should we be working in Rocky wrote an article years ago about uh, creating a standard set of terms so that when we're communicating to each other, we're all speaking the same language. Right. Um, I think that that's certainly an interesting topic to explore and, and figure out what things can, can we develop to make sure that education is effective yeah. is, the, is the key thing. This is, this is going to sound a little bit like a corp commercial, and I don't really mean it that way. But a couple of years ago, uh, I and a group of riggers around the world put together under the um, under the tutelage and super, supervision of Lori Rubenstein. Um, we put together the International Code of Practice for Entertainment Riggers, short, uh, commonly referred to as ICOPPER. And it is a white paper, if you will, um, that identifies how things are done within the arena rigging world on a worldwide basis. It's an attempt at identifying the terms that we all use, um, you know, and developing, for lack of a better word, it's an overused word, but developing harmony between the the various cultures and geographical areas around the world. Um, I was very proud of the document when, when we finished. Um, it didn't get much press here in the States. Um, Europe jumped all over it. Um, and, you know, it's that kind of thing that, that when, I fin- when we finished it, I realized this would be a really cool thing to do for theater rigging in the United States. Because Lord knows we have our different cultures and different geographical areas here. Um, oh, certainly. Uh, you know, but it, it, it would be a step on the road of you know getting all of the 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 information uh, organized in a manner that makes it useful everywhere yeah it it 
it's not a very long read. It's uh, it's well worth any amount of time you spend looking at it. But there are certain things that I found very interesting, like, um, for instance, we all hang 40 feet of truss on two motors with a couple of dozen Lecos, and we do it on half tons. We all, from experience, know that we're probably okay. We're not overloading anything. But the document says you really should be sitting down it and something that size is going to take not much time and actually putting pencil to paper and writing it down saying, hey, I checked to make sure we're good. It's small things like that that some people may pull out of the document um, versus all the way up to your pre-producing a large event and having your rigging plots done in uh in advance and et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of good information in it. Um, I would agree with you that there's not a lot of foothold in the States. I know it's something that I bring up in my training to make people aware of, but I don't know if a lot of people are spending much time with it, but it's a helpful tool. It's out there for people to be able to use. Yeah. It's a free, free download off the ESTA webpage. Yeah. So I've mentioned a few times that you've, uh, had a a storied career what <laughs> one of the questions i'd like to ask is what is one of the scariest rigging situations or stories that you have and i preface it by saying preferably not one that ends in someone getting severely hurt but maybe walking in to do an inspection and you saw something that was just mind-blowing that it could get to that state or a particular challenge of hey we need to fix this and we have time constraints and and that aspect but uh we certainly nor know as a, a previous guest men mentioned that uh blood leads in the news and that uh we like scrolling through social media and seeing scary rigging photos of things so uh you have any shareable stories of scary rigging <laughs> You know, the reality is that I do not. I mean, I've been in, in many theaters uh, doing inspections or being called in to, um, uh, to investigate a particular situation or an accident. Um, oh, one just occurred to me. I had forgotten all about this. I'm not going to mention any names or anything, but there was a, a university theater that had a, a standard counterweight rigging system, but it was a wire guide system. So there were no guide tracks over on the wall. There were no T-tracks or, or aluminum J guides or anything. The, the, the arbors, the counterweight arbors, rode up and down in, uh, uh, in these guide wires that, came, that ran through the arbors. Um, typically, you don't want to see a guide system taller than 35 feet because once you get past that, it's not effective. It won't do the job. And people tend to over tighten them, trying to get the, the cables uh, tight enough to keep the arbors from flapping in the breeze. Well, this particular university had an old wire guide system that was about 65 feet tall. And over the years, you know, they'd been in there, um, you know, they would tighten up their students would come in on a maintenance day and they come in and tighten up the thing wire guides and of course you know the, the, the arbor is 40 feet in the air still going to flap in a breeze and they run the risk of hitting its next door neighbor and you know pulling the weight out of it um i got a call one day 
and I, the, you know, they said, you need to come out here and, and, and look at this. We have a problem. They didn't describe the problem, so I went out, got out there the next day, and walked on stage, and I looked over stage right where I knew the locking rail was, except that it was no longer there. It was, it was just, it was gone. And, and you know, there was that moment of like, what the hell? And then I looked up and there was the locking rail, the you know, completely assembled locking rail, about 25 feet in the air. They had tightened up their wire guides so much over the years that the attachment hardware, putting, anchoring the locking rail to the floor, had given out. And the wow. whole thing just went up in the air and it kept going until, you know, there was a reasonable balance um, between the weight on stage and, and the weight of the rail and, and the gear hanging. And it's like, huh, I, I, you don't see and that every day. No, and it defies logic. I'm sure there's the moment of I, I recognize what I'm seeing, but it does not make sense. Well, yeah. it's kind of like when you're when you when you're going somewhere, you know, where you know somewhere around town that you've been a thousand times before, but in the last time between the last time you were down that road and this time, they tore down a building, and you recognize right. you recognize that there used to be a building there, but you can't remember what the building looked like. Yeah, at least that's what happens to me. And, and it was like, wait a minute, there was supposed to be something here. <laughs> it's just not here anymore. Wow. So that, was pretty, that was pretty wild. Um, that made me think of a, a topic that uh, literally I, I posted on a friend's Facebook page this morning, this same comment, which is I mentioned that people like looking at photos on Facebook of quote unquote scary rigging. Um, I'm not one of those people, by the way. That's that's the topic I, I thought I would bring up, which is. Uh, there are some people who have become social media stars to say in our industry for uh, commenting on the failures of others or taking a photo and making decisions based on that sole photo. And I think that's a, although can be entertaining, there are some real challenges with that because, you know, we like to say a photo is worth a thousand words, but, you still need context and you still don't have all the information. And I think that's a, something that people should be cautious about is making judgments based on limited information um, about risk assessment and decisions that people have made. Um, I am, um, you know, this, this, this carries over from uh, 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 an opinion of mine that I've had for many years long before the internet. Um, but, you know, in using the Internet as the example, I'm all for uh, an educational situation. If you're going to show me a, um, a photo of something, uh, I want it to be, an, you know, of something wrong or something right. I want it to be an educational thing, not just a, <laughs> look what this idiot did. Um, you know, that doesn't, it's not helpful. And as you say, you know, it may be completely inaccurate. People will post things when they have no clue what really was going on. Um, there were some situations in the, in, in, in the long ago where 
information was used. In particular, there was one where a friend of mine was killed, and the information was used in training by someone else, and and it was inaccurate, um, but it was it was used by the trainer as an attention getter. You know, hey, you gotta don't do this. I mean, you see what happened? You, you should never do this, and otherwise you're gonna die and stuff. And it's cheating, um, you know. Um, and I've I, I've never felt that that's appropriate. I don't use uh, accidents where people have gotten injured or there have been fatalities. I don't use those in any of my training. And the the, the few photographs, a few imagery that, that I use where things have gone wrong, um, you develop a full discussion about not only what went wrong, but why and what led up to it and what, what happened afterwards. Absolutely. I, one, there's the concern of you know, if you use graphic imagery, how do you affect your students? Is it, are they emotionally distraught and miss everything else that's after it um, in terms of using it for a learning tool? Um, it's certainly a concern. Um, I had a thought and it just evaporated from my brain. Okay. I, uh, you may not know this, but I'm in... Uh... A parking lot, and I may have to. No, he's going to make it. Hang on a second here. It looks like I'm going to have to get out of the way of um, of a truck. I don't know quite what's going on. Um, yeah, I'm in a parking lot right now because my. Satellite internet at home is too slow to uh, to work on these kind of meetings. It just shows your dedication to the industry and the things you're willing to do to contribute. <laughs> and, and and you know, truth be told, it also gets me out of out of the house in these quarantine days. So that's not a problem. You know, it's a benefit there. Exactly. Too. Exactly. Along the lines of the, you know, worst rigging you've ever seen or, or scary situations, taking into consideration what you said before, which is you, you don't actively rig as much as you used to, besides dropping something, what is your biggest fear as a rigger? Talking about it? Uh, <laughs> um, you don't want to hurt anybody. You know, it all boils down to you don't want to hurt anybody. And it's not a fear. You know, I'm not, if, if I was afraid that, you know, we were going to hurt somebody, then I wouldn't do it. But, you know, with, with my staff, my, uh, the people who rig for me, um, they're very good people. And we work very hard to make sure the projects are done safely and properly. We've had situations where we've been involved in a project and there are other um, companies, other vendors also involved in the project. And, um, you know, we make sure that what not only that what we're doing is right and safe, but we're going to call it out if somebody else is doing something that is unsafe. Yeah, and, and having the ability 
knowing how to bring something up to others that may be outside of your immediate uh, authority or control to bring up to others and say, you know, in an appropriate way of educating those you're working with in different departments, let's say, uh, about safety concerns. Um, that's certainly a challenge I think, especially younger people in the industry face is you see something that is glaringly, obviously not correct. An easy example is someone standing on the very top of a ladder. It's a six foot ladder. They just, they got to reach that pin spot to focus it in the ballroom or something. And maybe they're working for a different company, but how do we within our industry and a community keep everyone safe? You know, the easy thing is, well, they don't work for my company. I have nothing to do with it versus learning the appropriate way of drawing attention to that and saying, hey, we, we, we together can be doing better. Right. Um, I would say the first thing to remember is that we all have a duty here. OSHA recognizes it and, and identifies it. It's called duty of care. We all have a duty to keep, to ensure a safe work, workplace. Uh, and that has to do with the work that you are doing for your company. And it, it also has to do with the people working around you who are working for other companies. You know, if they're doing some, something unsafe, could potentially hurt themselves, someone else, or get somebody killed or whatever. Um, you know, you have a duty to bring that up. Fortunately. Absolutely. Fortunately, at this stage of the game, it's a little easier. I mean, we have a safety awareness that has grown by leaps and bounds over the last 20 years or so. So, you know, while it's still not the easiest thing in the world, um, it's easy, it is easier. You need to know the hierarchy. You need to know where you would, you would go. Who is it that you would go talk to if you see something on site? Um, that's that's wrong. That's unsafe. That's you know incorrect or something. Um, you know, and that hierarchy is is better established these days than it used to be. Right. And, and if um, that doesn't work, call me. There, there have been times where I've I've had people reach out and say, "Hey." I'm seeing this situation and I know it's not right, but I don't have the people who don't perceive me to have the, the knowledge base to correct it. Can you assist? Um, there are people in the industry that you can reach out to, to, to help support improving sure. the safety culture. Um, I remember finally it took a few minutes. I remember what I was going to mention. We were talking about, um, telling stories or using stories in your teaching process. Um, I have a very quick story that I tell when I do trainings about a ground supported structure in Las Vegas that collapsed. And I was, again, like you mentioned, I had received and, and there's a term I'm going to coin. I'm ripping this off from someone else, which is a telephone, telegram, telerigger, which is, you know, the phone game where you hear a story and each version, something changes, a detail changes. And that's something you have to be careful with to make sure that the story or the information is being portrayed accurately. So I tell the story of, of what I had heard from different sources of what had happened to cause this failure. And this was a class of about 25 people and uh, a gentleman in the front row uh, raises his hand 
And I say, yes. And he says, yeah, that was my show. That was me. And, and part of the story was he had walked away from a situation. He had determined that the course of action was unsafe. He was unwilling to do it. So he walked away. They found someone else who was willing to do it. They had a failure. Um, and it, it scared me when he said that because my first thought was, am I, am I doing justice to this story? Am I portraying the information correctly so that people are learning from it, not just telling a story? And thankfully he, he mentioned that, yes, I was, you know, relatively accurate in what I was saying. So that is something you have to be aware of when you're sharing these stories about what happened is information can change. It, it, you know, unless you were there, unless you have firsthand knowledge or you are part of the failure analysis process, there's information you're not going to know. And that can change people's perception of what happened. Um, so we got to be careful yeah. with the rushing to judgment is the moral of the story. Going back to that whole thing before. Yeah. And that's, and that's the whole social media issue these days is everybody rushes to judgment. Um, everybody speculates and, you know, speculating in gold didn't help most of the 49ers and it's not going to help us in our industry either. I'll be the first one to sit and shoot the breeze over a, over a beer about something that happened. But when I teach a class, I make certain, absolutely certain that whatever I am teaching, I know for a fact, I don't speculate. I don't, you know, kind of, you know, well, maybe this happened, maybe that happened. It's not helpful. It doesn't give, you know, good information. And besides, you, you come up with something and you're wrong, you've lost your credibility and you won't get that back. Exactly. He, it, what we don't want is the mindset of it's better to be, to be first than right. Um which is what social media promotes. It's better to, you know, where are the first ones with this news? Well, was it accurate? And as you said, if it hurts your credibility, then what does it matter? So related to a, a question I asked before, and I, and I mentioned this with some previous guests, certainly as a business owner, you have clients that you can't talk about publicly. Um, but what has one of your favorite projects been um, to work on. And obviously if there's certain details you got to leave out to protect the innocent, absolutely. But, um, what are some of the fun ones? Let's not just be doom and gloom, but let's be, uh, interesting and exciting. Well, I don't know about interesting, exciting for the rest of the world, but there's stuff that, that makes me happy that I find exciting. Um, you know, rigging a Peter Pan, in 1973, in a lecture hall at University of Pennsylvania, where the the flying apparatus were ropes hanging from points in the ceiling, so that if you were flying, you put your foot in a loop and you swung on the rope. And Peter had a special one where he put a tire on uh, on his swing, excuse me, her swing. And, um, and and she swung in the tire. And the audience, which was made up of, you know, eight, nine, and 10-year-olds, ate it up. And they bought into it, and it was a remarkable experience. Flash forward a million years, and 
um, the Phoenix, which was a sculpture exhibit that we installed that I had nothing to do with the actual installation, but I was involved in the design process. Um, my brother Michael and his team did the installation. Um, but we hung 38,000 pounds worth of equipment in a cathedral that was never designed to have anything hung in it. Uh, it was built in the late 1800s. No hanging points, of course. Um, so it was, it was, it was a wonderful experience, not the least of which because the artwork, the two, the two Phoenix sculptures that we hung were beautiful. They were amazing. And from a historical perspective, we used to do some work. We used to do some work at the White House back in, in, in earlier in the late 90s. And working at the White House for oh so many reasons is an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. I can imagine. I was going to say, I believe that the Phoenix Project, uh, there's an article in one of the uh, editions of Protocol Magazine. Um, mm -hmm. talking about the, the just challenges. So if people want uh, more information, I'll see if I can dig up the link for that and put it in the show notes. Um, all right. Well, I I think maybe we're at the, the, the toughest question I've been asking everyone. Okay, I'm ready. Hit me. This has stumped a few people, but I'm, I'm, my expectations are high here. What is your best or worst <laughs> rigor joke? <laughs> what is my best or worst rigor joke? <sighs> well, I mean, how do you get a rigor off your front porch? How? You pay him you pay him for the pizza. There we go. See, I'm I'm happy. Yeah, that's, See, that's the worst. I was gonna say there's one that's been that people keep going back to, so we've had some repeats, but that is not one that anyone has brought up yet. So I'm I'm very happy for that. That's the one that people keep going back to. Um how can you tell when there's a rigor at your party? They'll let you know. <laughs> True enough. True enough. Sadly, Absolutely. that's not really a joke. <laughs> no, no. There's there's a reason why some of them are, are funny because they're based in truth, some uh, amount of truth. But excellent. Well, I don't think I have any other questions for now. Um, as I've said with other guests, I'm always leaving up the opportunity for uh, people to come back and, and talk about different things. But I want to thank you for spending some time in the parking lot talking with me and answering some questions. And, and as you have always done, contributing to the advancement of our industry. I greatly appreciate it. And I certainly think our listeners are going to appreciate it. And do you have any uh, final thoughts? Well, thank you, Ethan. This was this was good fun, and uh, you know I enjoyed talking with you. Um, it's nice that we're finishing up now because it's getting warm in this parking lot. Uh, so no, thank you. Seriously, this is uh, this is good fun, and it's always always um, good to get information out to uh, 
to as many people as possible whenever possible and in whatever manner even even you know these these podcasts which are which uh, i think are, are really uh beneficial i want to thank you for doing them oh thank you very much and again i i appreciate you taking the time and thank you for everyone for listening i hope you enjoyed it and until next time keep the pin in the shackle son you know your father was a rigger a rigger was he The shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.